Hi, I'm Ben Kaplow, and welcome to All Keyed Up. Thanks so much for listening. Today, I spoke with Johnny May. Johnny May is a pianist and educator whose passionate style of playing and teaching has inspired thousands of pianists worldwide. At age 18, he became the youngest pianist to perform at Disneyland, where he entertained guests for nine years as the Disneyland Main Street Pianist. On YouTube, Johnny's educational and performance videos have been viewed over 76 million times and earned over half a million subscribers to date. As a co-founder of PianoWithJohnny.com, his online piano courses have helped thousands of piano students learn their favorite songs and styles. He is a summa cum laude graduate of the Mihalo College of Business, a father and a husband to his wife and biggest fan, Crystal. In the interview, we talked about two topics, teaching improvisation and marketing digital courses. More specifically, in the first half of the interview, we talked about strategies for teaching improvisation in a way that's instantly satisfying, as opposed to a way that requires heavy understanding of music theory. In the second half of the interview, we talked about some of the entrepreneurialistic thinking behind Johnny's YouTube videos and online courses and how he thoughtfully pairs free content with paid content in a way that's most beneficial for his mission and business. He also gave advice to other piano teachers who are interested in marketing their digital content. Before we get started on the interview, I want to let you know about Brock Chart's Five Finger Pop and Five Finger Jazz series. As I've mentioned in numerous episodes on this podcast, I fully embrace popular and contemporary music in my studio, but sometimes when using arrangements of popular music, I come across pieces that are unsatisfying since it can be awkward to adapt vocal lines to the piano. Brock Chart's Five Finger Books provide music that stylistically references a lot of the music that our students listen to recreationally, but it's written with piano students in mind, so everything is idiomatic and sequenced thoughtfully. Here are some snippets of backing tracks from the series to show you what the music is like. Brock's books were recently featured in the American Music Teacher magazine with a great review by Dr. Michelle Conda. If you order from the website www.my-melodies.com and enter the code KEEDUP10 at checkout, that's the number 10 as opposed to T-E-N, you can get 10% off anything you order. Now on to the interview. Johnny May, thanks so much for joining today. Thanks, Ben. It's great to be here on your podcast. Today, we're going to talk about teaching improvisation. Before we get into the specifics of it, I kind of want to talk philosophical. So one of the threads that I've noticed in many of your videos is you often push back against the idea that in order to improvise at the piano in a way that sounds musically satisfying, you need to kind of accept extreme delayed gratification and go through these years and years of study where you learn all the scales, all the chords, all the seventh chords, and then you can start improvising. You offer many quick YouTube videos that honestly make people sound good in a few minutes, um, almost instantaneously. So what do you think is the problem with withholding improvisation for a while? And can you talk about your approach to offering guidance on improvisation in a way that's maybe a bit more instantaneous than the approach that some other teachers use? Yeah, definitely. And that's a really great question. Um, it's certainly something that I experienced as a you know young jazz pianist. I'm classically trained. And you know, at least 
for classical music, we're told, okay, you gotta learn all your skills and arpeggios before you can play, you know, a lot of the classical repertoire. And I would say that that's true, but for jazz, it's actually the opposite. Um, what I would say in jazz, it's actually better to um, immerse yourself in the, the music, right? Because jazz, if you go back to like the very first jazz artist that came, you know, I mean, start with ragtime, jazz was an aural tradition. So if you go back to, you know, 1940s, like a lot of the great jazz musicians that came out of the bebop era, they weren't classically trained. Like they, they actually, like in many cases, did not know what they were playing. They just had heard it. And so um, they learned through listening. And I, th I feel like um, <laughs> as like a lot of, I know you're, you have a lot of uh, classical teachers probably watching this, but we tend to overemphasize the importance of theory, which theory is, mm -hmm. is important. We overemphasize that and we underemphasize listening and immersion. Um, and it's like, it's very interesting, man. Like I watched an interview uh, by Victor Wooten. He's someone that comes to mind, you know, like one of the most legendary jazz bass players, uh, improvisers. And he was talking about how he, he was playing um, the scale it was the Dorian scale. It, it's a it's a mode we use in jazz, and he didn't know the name of it. And so he had spent like his whole life playing this scale, and like he grew up with his buddies, and they called it some weird name. It was like, oh, this is like the the gospel scale, or they gave it some funky name. And then it was like later in his life that he learned the name of it. Right. And so I think it's kind of similar with jazz. I mm -hmm. I think um, in the same way classical musicians should learn all of the theory. Yes, jazz musicians, musicians should as well, but it should start as an, as an oral tradition. And for me, like, um, you know, I think back to my own journey as a jazz musician, my jazz education actually started with um, about eight years of listening before I ever started playing jazz. And for me, my dad, wow. was, yeah, my dad was a jazz bass player. Um, he was an attorney by day and a jazz bass player by night. Okay. He'd go gig um, in LA where we grew up and um, he would take me with him to his gigs when I was very young. I was probably six or seven and he'd play in these like fancy LA hotels and I would sit and I would listen for hours to jazz standards. And I, mm -hmm. so I was hearing Gershwin and Cole Porter and all these wonderful tunes and I was hearing, you know, uh, rootless voice and chords and all of this wonderful stuff. And I had no idea what they were playing, but I was absorb absorbing it. And so by the time I started learning jazz 13, I had all these sounds in my head that I wanted to play. And then I started to learn the names. And so that's, you know, drawing from my own experience and I'm a classical musician too. So I learned classical, but I really do think it turns people off when you make such, when you emphasize so much the theory before the jazz. I think you can definitely um, teach uh, theory while you're learning jazz. But um, I think, you know, definitely improvisation um, in many ways can and should come first. Mm -hmm. um, another thought that comes to mind is my son. I have a three and a half year old son. And, uh, you know, he like... I think about lear him learning the language, the English language. Yeah, that was what I was just about to say. I mean, we use in language like adverbs long before we learn that it's called an adverb. And right. that's what I was thinking in a lot of your answer there. Absolutely, right? Little kids, they are, they're absorbing the language. They're immersed in the language. Mm -hmm. And then later on, they learn, you know, pronouns and prepositions mm -hmm. and all these things. If you start with that, like, yeah, you can, but it's not meaningful. Mm -hmm. you, you should start with immersion. If you... You know, it's like learning a language. Yeah, you can study French and go through a French book and learn all the rules. But can you speak French? Yeah. 
Probably not well. Will you speak mm -hmm. musically or artistically? Will you speak beautifully? Probably not. Mm -hmm. um, and, and my argument would be, hey, if you have to do one or the other, study the book or go to France, hands down, go to France because <laughs> you will learn the nuances. You'll pick up, I think, the nuances of expression that you absolutely cannot in a book. Yeah, that does remind me. I mean, I think there's so many connections with language. And I mean, if you think about it, any kind of language, whether it's your three-year-old son or us right now, is a form of improvisation. And so it's so commonplace accepted that when learning a language, you have to try out your own sentences. But in music, for whatever reason, that idea of you know, express yourself in your own way and don't follow a pre-written script doesn't tend to come until much, much later. So I do right. think that the way that you're describing is a lot more in line with how we learn language. So I want to go on this idea of sort of how to start out. And let's say we have someone who is the musical equivalent of maybe not your three and a half year old son, but maybe a year or two beyond that. And someone who really doesn't know theory. Yeah. Um, and you've had some videos that target people like this. There was one video I saw of yours where I think you started by just introducing middle C and it was yeah. already an improv video. And yeah. I liked this one uh, headline that I saw. It was like called Improvise Piano, Even If You Have Zero Talent. <laughs> so um, in yeah. these types of videos, if I can sort of describe what I tend to observe, you basically combine, confine the range of possible musical gestures so much so that basically no matter what you do within those confines, it's probably going to sound pretty good. Yes. Um, and this is something I'm often trying to do in my own lesson when I'm just making up improv exercises for my students, sometimes on the fly, thinking, how can I set the system up so that they'll sound good no matter what? And you're very good at creating kind of schemas like that. So yeah. can you talk about how you come up with some of these and in general, if you have any advice uh, for teaching improvisation to kind of extreme beginners who truly know virtually nothing about music theory? Yeah, that's a great question. So improvisation, I'll start off, is not having a lot of notes. It's not having a lot of scales. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. what you do with a minimal amount of information. A great painter can paint a masterpiece with three colors. It's not having 30 colors that makes you a great painter. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. It's how much can you do with less? How creative can you be? I mean, look at people who do pencil sketching. They're using right. a pencil and it's yeah. unbelievable what you can do. Or think of like haiku poems or something and what people can do with those rigid structures. Exactly. I, th I think it's very important as educators that we limit. You know, um, if you give someone... Um, yeah, a ton of colors to paint with. If you give them 200 colors, that's overwhelming, right? Uh, mm -hmm. If you give them three, it's like, okay, I can do something with this. So I think that's a very important with any form of improvisation is to limit the student, only give them a small selection of chords and notes. Because what I've found in my many, many years as a jazz improviser, I students come to me and they say, you know, Johnny, I don't like my improvisation. I, I, I need some more scales. I, I don't like the chords that I'm playing. And uh -huh. I say, well, why don't you play with me? play for me. And I say, play a blues, right? And the blues, right? That's blues scale, right? Six notes, really simple. And then they do this. Okay. And I say, well, you know what your problem is? They say, what? I say, it's not that you're, you don't know enough scales. I said, you're using one thing that's possible with the blues scale, which is eighth notes okay right and and so we we dive into i mean literally we made a whole course series on this called the 10 lesson blues challenge it is 10 lessons it's four hours of content it's probably three hours for the beginner to intermediate uh three hours for the intermediate to, to advance so six hours of content on 
the blue scale one scale wow. all the things you can do with that the blue a scale deep dive yeah I am adding a few other things, but 98% of what yeah, I'm playing is six notes. Scale, yeah. mm -hmm. So I think this is very important and, and you don't have to do this. I know you have educators watching this. You don't have to play like this, but the, the importance, the point I'm driving home is if your student wants to improvise, give them a small palette, give them, give them four notes. And I do this a lot, right? Even for the blues, four notes, right? And you're like, geez, what can I do with four notes? It's like, well, It's yeah, obviously it's going to sound mundane, but the point is like what I'm doing rhythmically yeah. with four notes. Um, I, I would say that's extremely important as teachers um, is to explore the rhythm. That's the other piece I was going to say. I don't hear students do enough rhythmically to make it mm. interesting. Yeah, I mean, when I think of like possible sequences that teachers can use to teach students improvisation, I could so see much more sort of promise with what you're describing, where you start with even just five notes and then add rhythms, add flourishes, add these, as opposed to what you were describing earlier when the students are like, oh, I need to know this scale. Okay, now more scales, more scales, more scales. And you just kind of get overwhelmed with options. Uh, this reminds me of when I first, first started teaching. This was a huge mistake I made is giving improvisation exercises that had way too many options and I would right. say something like improvise something happy go <laughs> it's so much easier to say okay you have these five notes this okay what can we do with that what are some rhythms we could do I mean when you sort of confine the possibilities in a way I think it's more liberating than when you just give them the whole piano I mean it's like what you were talking about with pencil sketches right I mean, I definitely feel that a lot in your YouTube videos where you give these very like seemingly narrow scales or chord patterns to use but the options within those are limitless and I like your point about rhythms there yeah, and I think for someone on the advanced side, yeah, they might get bored and be like, well, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it, I can do that, and fine, I'll, I will teach you more scales, but it's amazing how underutilized these scales tend to be, the rhythms that people use, the harmonies, and um, if you listen to a lot of great uh, improvisers, Keith Jarrett, Chick Corea, Bill Evans, they it's, it's really funny, I did a whole quick tip on Bill Evans, I analyzed his solo on Autumn Leaves, and he uses the major scale, like, for the first like eight bars. <laughs> wow. But his, what, what makes it absolutely fantastic and brilliant is his use of rhythm and his use okay. of um, sequence and how he takes a melody and he'll shift it around to places mm -hmm. you wouldn't expect. So I think a great improviser is not one who knows a lot of skills and a lot of, it, it's someone who can take very basic information and construct something beautiful i mean i i don't you might have people watching who do like computer code i mean what is computer code in the end it's like ones and zeros right? it's two things but it's how they're how, how they're ordered that you can create anything in the world so yeah i i just would drive that home for all of your listeners um yeah the uh, another thing i i would say that's very important with improvisation i think it ties into this is demonstrating um before you 
it kind of goes back to the theory uh, point, but is is kind of showing what it sounds like before you start digging into the kind of explanations, I think is pretty important. Yeah, that goes to the oral listening that you were saying a lot of the jazz greats received. So I'm interested in earlier when you said that Bill Evans used rhythmic sequencing to make even a major scale sound interesting. And that gets to something that I find a lot with more advanced students who I think are similar to students a lot of our listeners have, where they come from a classical background and do know the rudiments of theory. They know the scales, they know their triads and seventh chords, but when they improvise, it sounds wandery and... arbitrary. And frankly, this was me in eighth grade where everything was idiomatic and made sense, but didn't really have a plot. And so what you're talking about with rhythmic sequencing is definitely one way to keep it a little more cohesive. But can you elaborate a little bit more on what you would recommend for a student like that who knows their theory, but when they improvise, it sounds wandery and uninspired? (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of directions that I could go with this. You know, the things that you just mentioned, if you know your major skills and your seventh chords and all that, I mean, you can create some really beautiful improvisations with just that. So I think uh, one thing that comes to mind is um, intention behind what you're playing. Mm. Um, Whenever I improvise, I try to imagine what the next thing will sound like that I will play. Okay. Um, And I think a lot of improvisers, when they're improvising, they're just not really sure what it's going to sound like. And that's part of the process. But you really want to get to a place where when you're improvising you can imagine what would I, what, if I was listening to a pianist, what would I want them to play here? Where would I want them to go and try to then direct your fingers there? Mm. And the hope is that through time, as you experiment, as, as you discover sounds, you will associate that in your head to where if I want that sound, then I can execute on it. So intentionality is a big piece of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, a big component is rhythm. Um, One of the biggest struggles that I had when I was learning jazz coming from a classical background, the rhythm for jazz is fundamentally different than classical, okay? When you learn classical, how do you learn your scales? Quarter notes, right? Eighth notes, one and two and three. Sixteenth notes, one E and a two E and a three E, right? And then if you have a really good teacher, they'll say triplets. They'll say triplet, trip, or, you know, one and a two and a three and a, right? The basic rhythm in jazz and i wouldn't even say the word rhythm i would go as far as saying the basic pulse of jazz is your triplet right one and two and three and four Mm -hmm. triplet triplet and it's amazing how i can see i will take a student who's classically trained and they can play brilliant you know franz list pieces but as soon as i hand them fly me to the moon and say okay play this melody swing it and these chords they can't do it yeah it turns into dotted eighth sixteenth. <laughs> it turns into dotted eight sixteenth. Exactly. Right. Oh no. Right. And and you have to rethink like the fundamental rhythm that you are taught in classical. In jazz, not all jazz is swung, but most jazz is swung. And so you have to ingrain the triplet. You have to practice feeling the triplet as the it's the fabric. It's it's the it's the baseline rhythm of jazz, mm. and I think a lot of classical, music, classical musicians don't do that, and they don't even realize that they don't do that, do that. So for me, you know, doing a lot of triplet exercises, one and two and three and four, and then one or triple, uh, triple, let triple, let triple, let triple, and trip, and then a triplet, 
trip, blah, 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 trip. Like you do different oh, combinations. So changing where the accent is. Change yeah. where the accent is. And then do it across beats. Don't just do it on beat one and two and three. Do it on, uh, you know, one, uh, let's see, triple it, triple it, triple it, triple it, tri right? One and a, like two a and a three and a... Exactly. So what you want to do, I, in my opinion, to play jazz and especially swing, mm -hmm. is you want to practice mastering the triplet with different odd accents where you okay. become, you develop an awareness of each triplet subdivision on each beat. Hmm. And it is, it is, it, it baffles me how many classical musicians cannot go one and two and three and four and one and two and they can't do it. They go one and two and three and four. They, they go straight or they do yeah. what you said. Um, and that rhythm is one of the most important rhythms. It's called the Charleston. You know. Right. Um, and so just stuff like that to answer your question, I find classical musicians kind of a bit more advanced people will struggle with. Um, I'm, I'm actually really curious to know what were your struggles Um <laughs> Specifically, when you say like your playing was not, you know, a smooth. Yeah, I felt like it, it was sort of each moment vertically in of itself sounded fine, but horizontally it felt wandery. Like each moment didn't relate to the preceding moments. Yeah, right. And then when I tried to fix that, I felt like it turned into theme and variations and it became very literal and not jazzy sounding. But I definitely yeah. never had what you're talking about, about trying these triplet exercises and changing the accents. Uh, I, I think there probably should have been more of an emphasis on rhythm, which is yeah. what you're talking about. And I could have, I would have loved to have learned what you were talking about earlier with the rhythmic sequencing that Bill Evans does. I mean, that was definitely not part of my training. Yeah. I will say one thing is storytelling. We think mm -hmm. of intent, we don't, when, as pianists, when, as improvisers, we tend to think of melody. Right, I'm just improvising these little lines. But there's texture. When we're improvising that there's no texture that's a very thin texture what if i'm doing you know right and oh it's like it's more interesting there's more harmonies going and then a bigger texture I'm doing a lot of yeah cool i think stuff that was an hand. issue is i would freely go back and forth between thicker textures and thinner textures mm, yeah. interesting what you're doing there and you're improvising i think makes it sound a lot more consistent well yeah and it's building yeah. it, so the point mm -hmm. i'm making is you start with simple textures and you build mm -hmm. the way you build textures is with harmony right more harmony mm -hmm. notes creates a thicker right. more exciting texture yeah. um range the higher you go on the piano and the lower you go the bigger the sound you get um and then the speed of the notes you know if you're playing eighth note Right, it's gonna have a simpler sound. Uh, right, those, those were like triplets. So there's mm -hmm. devices that you can use to build the excitement and create more intentionality in your solo to where, to answer your question, you can. Mm -hmm. it feels like one thought versus lots yeah, of exactly. spirit thoughts. Right, right, right. No, that's so interesting. Um, but I really like that exercise you were giving earlier about doing the triplets and keep changing the accent. I, mean, I think that's- Yeah, it's harder really than good. you think, especially when you do it like, 
one to four, you know, one and two and three and four and one and two. <laughs> and three something and four. to practice tonight. But yeah. I was just interviewing Jeremy Siskind, who I know you've done a video with, and he was talking about rhythm a little bit. And his big uh, number one advice, as he said, he also like it was always feels like a lot of times people who come from a more classical background, when even once they understand, quote, understand swing and triplets, they always play it like one and two and three. And, pull, and they have no ability to kind of go on the off beats or anything. So that overlaps a lot with what you were saying there. Right. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about kind of a, a lot of what you're talking about here about the horizontal aspect and textures and different chords and different rhythmic patterns. Um, there's kind of different ways to introduce potential students or fans to these concepts. And what's interesting about you is you have these courses, which are very long term and have a curriculum, but then you have these YouTube videos, which are kind of one offs. And I, I don't think they're intended in a linear way. Maybe some videos follow off previous videos, but fundamentally, you yeah. can kind of just pick one. Yeah. Um, so can you talk about the relationship between how you introduce content in your videos versus how you do in your courses? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll start by saying the YouTube audience is very different than the yeah. audience we have on the course. How so? You know, with Johnny. Well, you know, think about it, man. Like, honestly, when you go to YouTube, what, what, do you, what are most people going to YouTube for? In my opinion, they're bored. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right? You're like, I'm on YouTube. You know, maybe something exciting <laughs> will pop up. The people who come to Piano with Johnny, which is our course business, they are intentional. They want to learn. They're serious. They're going to put in the time. They're, they're going to pay because it's a paid platform. And so they're going to be more willing to sit through more theory, more exercises, more of a curriculum. The people on YouTube are, you know, okay, yeah, I played piano as a kid. I haven't played in a while. And you see a video you're like, oh, that sounds cool. And so I think the delivery is a lot different on YouTube. It needs to be a lot faster. It needs to be like, hey, here's this cool thing I'm going to show you. And you don't spend as much time on the theory and the exercises yeah. because that's not really, that's not why they're there. So you have to be aware of your audience. I think people who, you know, do YouTube, people lose attention really, really fast. It is unbelievable to watch. You can see it on YouTube where, you know, it starts at 100% of people watching. And literally in the first 10 yep. seconds of a 10 minute yep. video, you've lost 40% of the audience. Mm-hmm. Like, ah, I've had that on some of my podcast episodes when I look at the analytics too. You have to hook them in right away. <laughs> you get them right away and you got to keep them there. And you've got, so there's, there's a real art to YouTube. And I'll be honest, I've been doing YouTube now 10 years. We started the YouTube channel and yeah, we've, we have a quarter million followers, but I still don't really know exactly what works. I've found certain hmm. things that work and you'll see it in my videos. I, you know, there's definitely a format to it, but I'm always, I'm always experimenting. I'm always trying something a little bit different, you know, and it's, it's odd. Something that I think might work extremely well, does it? And then something that does, you know, um, does work well, or if it does work well, it doesn't something I, yeah. don't, you get what I'm saying. Yeah. So yeah, it's very, it's very interesting. Um, the courses certainly um, are meant to be sequential. Um, and that being said, all of our courses are also meant to be standalone to where you get to the end of the course and it's very satisfying. It's not like mm -hmm. we left you hanging. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they're kind of different animals. And I, I would say the, the YouTube videos are meant to, um, it's kind of get your feet wet a little bit, but you're not doing a deep dive. And that's another yeah. thing, you know, kind of from a marketing perspective, you know, the YouTube channel has been massive to grow our, um, our membership base. 
to to what it is today. We have over ten thousand uh, students in the platform. That's amazing. Um, yeah, it's really exciting. I mean, it's it's you know it's cool to to watch it grow like that. But I would say a big reason for the success of Piano with Johnny is that we've really been intentional about the YouTube content to tie in with our course content. So um, right. I'm very intentional every time I make a YouTube video is okay. This is cool, but this is not the end game. This is a piece of what you could ultimately learn. And so, and I'm very, um, I'm very confident about promoting the courses because I believe in them. I think a lot of people are afraid to promote paid content, but we've made such good courses that I yeah. genuinely feel like it's my duty to share it in the videos. So in every video, I say, "Hey, if you want to learn more, there's a course." And yeah, um, yeah and so that's been big. And yeah, and then there's other things we do. We've got a, you know an email sign up where students can get a free, some free um, content. And so there's that piece of it, but I would say as for YouTube, like mm -hmm. all of your listeners who are on YouTube, like mm -hmm. you need to be putting out regular content. Um, our YouTube channel um, like was very slow for a long time. I have two okay. YouTube channels. I have one called Johnny May. It's all performances and then piano with Johnny. Um, we spun off the piano with Johnny channel in 2016 and we immediately had about 10,000 subscribers from our other channel who kind of came over to the other channel yeah. because they're students. But it, we sat, like it was really slow. And then in 2018, um, it started growing really fast. And now we're at a quarter million. The reason for that, and actually, yeah, it was 2018. The reason for that is we started putting out weekly content on okay. YouTube for that audience. Um, and prior to that, we were like putting up like, Basically, it was like demo versions of our courses, like 10 minutes where we were like mm -hmm. promoting the course, but it really was like not great content for YouTube because it was like out of context. It was like just oh, pieces of a course. And what I realized is no, like I have to make content for this audience. Um, and so I, I'm sure you have listeners who are putting course material uh, on YouTube. That didn't really work for us. It, it was okay, I need to make kind of flashy content Okay, yeah, that was going to be my next question is when you realized, okay, these 10 minute demos don't work, uh, I need to do something more exclusively for YouTube and for the YouTube audience, the big change was making it as you like flashier and more kind of instantaneous. Yeah, it's, uh, okay. yes, I would say, right, because the courses are meant to be, you know, our courses are two hours. So it's like a longer thought to get to the goal. And for YouTube, um, what I've realized is, you need to prove yourself quickly because there's also yeah. a lot of teachers on YouTube and like students have, don't have time to sign up for 10 platforms. They're going to pick the one that delivers the results the fastest. So the, the way I think of YouTube is it's two purposes. There's people who will never sign up for the course business because they're just not serious, but they'll mm -hmm. extract a lot of value from the YouTube videos. And that's great. You know, it feels like not every YouTube video needs to be well, you need to become a member. It's like, well, right. we're actually doing something really cool. We're like giving away tons of free content and we're helping a lot of people. And and that's worth it. Like just knowing that a lot of people are being helped. Yeah, no, but I do want to plant a flag in what something you said earlier, because I did want to talk about kind of from a marketing standpoint, how you found success doing free content simultaneous with paid content in a way that they support one another as opposed to kind of clash from each other. And I do think what's very helpful, what you do, and I've had some other guests who do as well, is sort of in the free content, like on YouTube, you plunge right into the content and then you say later on, if you would like more, 
more of a deep dive into this. If you'd like to learn more and you want something less instantaneous, you know, you have no shame in promoting the paid content on it. But that's once you've already given them a taste of it with the content on the YouTube uh, video. And so I would say that's a way that they really support one another. And I guess that would probably be if you had to give advice for our listeners who are kind of trying to get themselves out there and are also open to a mixture of free content on, I don't know, whether it's a podcast or YouTube or something like that, simultaneous with paid content like courses. Would that be kind of your main suggestion on how to have the two work well with each other as opposed to having all of their audience just go for the free content and kind of disregard the paid content. <laughs> yeah, it's they go hand in hand. I don't think we'd yeah. be where we are today without the free content. Mm-hmm. And to be honest with you, I, I I see a lot of young people, a lot of entrepreneurs. I have a friend of mine who it's not in piano. She was trying to do something, and she was so protective of her free content. And she was mm-hmm. like, "Well, I'm not going to give. I'm not going to make free whatever." And mm-hmm. she went nowhere with the business mm-hmm. because, like like think about it you have to like think logically like someone shows up on your website and you ask for a $300 purchase and they don't know you and you've proved nothing to them right like it's it's like the the best analogy to like selling a product is like a marriage it's asking someone to marry you you don't walk <laughs> up to a stranger and get them to marry you yeah. how do you get yeah, someone to marry you mm-hmm. you give them everything you give them your time <laughs> your money you pay for dinner you buy them gifts Right. You shower them with love. And then eventually they say, yes, I'll, I will give you my hard earned money. And it's no different with um, running. You know, if, if you have if got courses or something you're trying to sell, you need to give people tons of free content before mm-hmm. they will buy. And that's something we have. It's a motto in our business is, you know, we don't try to sell people right away. What, what we our strategy has been. We want people as close to us as possible, meaning we have the most direct connection to them. Because if you put videos on YouTube, you know, people may not see it because you're subscribed to hundreds of channels and maybe you don't go on YouTube. Yeah. We want to be on people's email list because we can go. And as you know, um, people like people are protective of the emails that come in. If you don't want an email coming in, you will hit unsubscribe. Right. (laughs) It's a more it's a more direct connection. And so our strategy yeah. on YouTube has been, hey, give us your email address. We'll send you this free weekly content. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a couple times a year we do a special and that's where we kind of do a hard sell. And, you know, mm-hmm. and then at that point, they're usually ready to sign up. So our sales cycle, we talk about sales cycles in business. Mm-hmm. It's a six month cycle. I don't expect someone to buy from us for at least oh. six months. And sometimes oh, people will wait years of getting free emails and we send a free 10 to 15 minute lesson video every single week without fail to our email list. And we don't ask for anything. We just say, here's a free lesson. So I I think a lot of um, like teachers and content creators are very protective over their free content or paid content Mm -hmm. and they don't emphasize the free content. These days, and we've been doing piano with Johnny 10 years, my highest focus is on the free content. Mm. Yeah, I um, was interviewing, uh, I don't know if you know the name Josh Wright. He um, is, he's like, kind of like what you do, but with classical. Uh, yeah, I've seen him, he's great. Yeah, um, and he also said he spends about 80% of his time on the free content, um, yeah. which is similar to what you're saying. So I do think that that's fantastic advice for many of our listeners who want to get their courses out there or things like that out there is to really focus on the uh, free content. And I love that analogy you gave about a marriage. It's so true. You don't just... <laughs> 
pop in and say, marry me. You have yes. to show them what you're all about first. In exactly. That's more low stakes before we get to that. Um, right. Before we go, can you give us a sense of what you're up to now and how everyone listening can learn more about you? Sure. Uh, so I do full-time piano with Johnny. It's, you know, we, we're, we've created a pretty large course library. Um, we're bringing on some new teachers in the plot, into the platform, which is pretty exciting. And um that's pretty much it. I mean, we're, we're, we do live events on the channel. We're always adding new content. And uh, I do occasionally put up a video on my other channel. It's just Johnny May. I haven't uh, been as active there just because my focus has been on um, the education business. Right. But yeah, go to pianowithjohnny.com. You can follow us on, on, uh, on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, uh, YouTube, and just watch piano videos to your heart's delight. Okay, great. And I'll try to link to all of the things you said there in the show notes. Johnny May, thanks so much for joining today. Wonderful. Thank you, Ben. It was a lot of fun. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to All Keyed Up. I'll see you next time.